We begin the news for June 4th with this piece on race. It is sometimes remarkable to notice the strange manner in which deep and strong human sympathies are limited and divided by the lines of race. Thus it comes about that we look on with comparative unconcern as not much affecting us, treatment dealt out to a race alien from our own, which, were it not for this circumstance, would be resented with strong indignation. An illustration of insensibility to the claims of humanity where race is concerned is afforded in this continent of Australia. Reports are constantly coming from Queensland of the wanton and brutal manner in which the natives of that colony are at times butchered by the native police or by outlying settlers. These accounts seldom attract much attention. It is thought that the affair is such a long way off, perhaps it isn't true. In any case, they are only blacks and it really is not worth making any fuss about. And so the incident perhaps a cruel and cowardly murder committed in cold blood or in jest, is dismissed from attention. A Queensland paper has resolved on attempting to kindle the sympathy and sense of justice of the public with regard to this subject by publishing detailed and vivid narratives of some of these massacres. The journal pledges its character on the accuracy of its facts. In introducing the subject, it remarks... All that these columns will contain may be regarded as mere echoes of the shameful tragedy that has been played since this colony was first founded and which is continuing actively at the present day, even at the very moment we write. It will be interesting to observe whether the narratives of cold-blooded atrocity given by our contemporary have any effect of really rousing the feeling and conscience of the public. If treatment of a thousandth part the murderous cruelty of this was shown to people of kindred race, the country would be aflame with wrath and indignation. But now we shall see. This story, trying to show that Black Lives Matter in Australia, comes to us from the Mount Alexander Mail in Victoria. For June 4th, 1880, this was the news. is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. With old news that still echoes today, I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you the stories of the issues in a time before hashtags. Today's news comes from the 4th of June, way back in 1880, but that opening piece on race and how easy we are to dismiss those of a race other than our own could have been written today. It doesn't take much to imagine, and it's kind of sad that we're reflecting on this so many years later. As I read the papers for 1880, there were stories of police dispersing the blacks from white station owner properties or stories about limiting alcohol sales to Aboriginals were the other mentions of our Indigenous population. Quite sadly, in reading the papers, most mentions of Aboriginal people were in conjunction with police or in the court reports. It's a worrying sign of the way things continue in Australia. And then there's this horrible piece about a court case between two white men, which states as follows, The plaintiff visited the defendant at Cannonbar having a black boy with him, whom he had obtained in the far north. 
Some negotiations ensued about this boy, and the plaintiff allegedly received a cheque for £10. The rest of the court case is outlined in the paper, with the only glimmer of hope coming from the judgment at the end, where the article states, The judge summed up elaborately. He expressed his horror at finding that Aboriginals were bought like a horse or a sheep. He thought that slavery had been abolished in the British dominions, but was surprised to find that the defendant had been guilty of such an offence as trafficking in human flesh and blood, treating it as a chattel or a personal possession. Sometimes I try and look on the lighter side of things with This Was The News, but I find that this issue at the moment that's dominating our current headlines is amazing to reflect on way back in 1880, and it's kind of worrying how little has changed in the 140 years since then. The story dominating many of the papers in 1880, though, was that of bushrangers. This report on a robbery from the Avoca Mail in Victoria. The commercial bank at Corindai, New South Wales, has been robbed by four armed bushrangers. The manager of the bank, Mr Allen, while feeding his horses at 10 o'clock on Tuesday night, suddenly found three revolvers were pointed at his head by men wearing calico masks. One of the men was tall and gentlemanly looking. The other two were rough-looking fellows. After threats on their part and equivocations on his for nearly an hour, he was compelled to open the safe and they took £488, mostly in gold. If you do the calculations on that, I found that it's over $100,000 in today's money. The article continues. After the bush rangers had helped themselves to some whiskey and enjoyed the fireside for some time, they ultimately left at half past 1am. The bank clerk and police were absent, the former on vacation, the latter on country duty. A party of police and a black tracker have gone in pursuit. The robbers are, it is believed, somewhere in the vicinity of the township. They are pretty well known, but do not belong to the district. In other papers, some contended that this robbery was the work of the Kelly gang, while others ruled it out. But all papers definitely had more to add on Ned Kelly and his gang. This piece on the Kelly Gang comes from the Kiama Independent and Shoalhaven Advertiser. The excitement concerning the notorious Kellys has almost died out. During the last few months, the information referring to them has been very meagre, and a great deal of what has been received has been of such an unreliable nature as to lack interest. A few weeks ago, however, what appeared to be authentic intelligence stated that their whereabouts was discovered, and although the position was unassailable except by a large body of men, yet their capture could not long be delayed. Following upon this, a late telegram to the evening news from Melbourne states, The police say that they now again have strong hopes of capturing the Kelly gang, but decline to disclose what their information is. Assistant Commissioner Nicholson and a strong detachment of troopers have gone out to assist in their capture. We only hope that it may be true. The remaining at large of such a band of criminals has long been a stain upon the colonies. And this fervour in capturing the Kelly Yang can be found in the next piece from the Herald in Melbourne, Victoria. 
Last night, the excitement attendant upon the sudden movement of the police was intense in Benalla, and the people assembled in groups in the bars of the hotels to discuss the all-absorbing question. When the police came back, they were closely scrutinised, and when it was seen that only a portion returned, the surmises were as many as they were various. It is certain that Ned Kelly paid a visit to Mrs Burns' house at the Woolshed on Sunday last, and information of that fact was brought to the police station by one of their informers, of which the police have a number. Upon receiving information, the police muster in grand style, gird up their belts, look to their revolvers, have two or three drinks, and turn out before an admiring crowd of pothouse loafers and disinterested tradesmen. They come back without succeeding. Of course, they say, had it not been for such and such a thing, the gang would have been caught right away. But then there are so many accidents on the road and so many spies that it is impossible for a decent member of the force to get a show at the villain. Meanwhile, at Greta, the outside residents, who are undoubtedly members of the crowd of sympathisers, are very mute upon any subject, excepting the state of the weather or a request to have a liquor. Any allusion to the gang is met with the usual rebuff of, Do I look like Ned Kelly? In and around Greta, the police are constantly dodging about in disguise in hopes of gaining information, which, however, is very seldom forthcoming. There appears to be no doubt whatever, even in the minds of the police, that the gang are safely housed in the neighbourhood of Greta, but who is to say where? The country is truly a dreadful place to travel over, and as everyone, without exception, is antagonistic to the police, a party out on the search stands a very poor chance. Mr Superintendent Hare states that something definite will be arrived at very shortly, and is now busily engaged picking his man for a good hunt. And as the police have now a large number of paid spies engaged, it appears only reasonable that something may be expected shortly. And it wasn't long they had to wait. The Glenrowan siege took place just over three weeks after this paper was printed, when Ned Kelly and his gang were finally captured. Let's take a short break now. It's time for some 1880 advertisements. It is acknowledged on all sides that the present enormous consumption of cigarettes is owing to the introduction of the Vanity Fair, the excellent quality of this being recognised all over the world. The splendid success of the Vanity Fair cigarettes has induced many imitations, but the public will please observe that every genuine cigarette has the words Vanity Fair and the Paris Prize medals printed on it. Vanity Fair Cigarettes, Feldham, Jacobs & Co. Agents. Fry's Homeopathic Cocoa, in packets and tins, is an article strongly recommended by many eminent medical men and is admirably adapted for homeopathic patients, invalids and for consumers generally. Fry's Cocoa, by K.S. Fry and Sons, Bristol and London. We'll continue the episode with more news from June 4th, 1880. 
This piece from the Bunyip in Gawler, South Australia, is throwing a bit of shade at the advertiser, that big city paper. It is an old and true axiom that one must go from home to hear news. The advertiser had the following in Tuesday's issue. A shock of earthquake was felt at Gawler on Tuesday morning at about four o'clock. As indicated by one of Mallet's seismographs, the shock travelled in a direction from northeast to southwest, with a horizontal intensity much above the vertical force. The amplitude was very short. We should imagine that the writer of the above had been kissing the baby too often during the previous evening and come in contact with his wife's fist, or more probably the broomstick. Or possibly overindulgence in club delights has made the writer dream of earthquakes, deaths and desolation, as our esteemed friend the late C. Wesley has put it. At all events, the advertiser has had this earthquake all to itself, and no doubt it will be the means of doing that journal good, as it wants a little shaking up. Yes, they are. Gaul are contending that they didn't have an earthquake that uh, they reported on in the Adelaide Advertiser. Moving over to Perth now, this report in the West Australian on some advances in science and technology. Some interesting experiments in telegraphy were lately made at Adelaide. The Superintendent of Telegraphs supplied the South Australian Register with the following information. On Sunday morning, the telegraph lines being clear of business, Melbourne and Port Darwin were put in direct communication with each other the distance between the two places being 2,500 miles. The signals were perfect at each end, the line working splendidly right through, and the replies were instantaneous. The cable was then cleared and communications exchanged with Singapore, a further distance of 2,200 miles, or 4,700 miles from Melbourne. Replies were received from Singapore in a few seconds, a message being sent and a reply received in the space of one minute from the commencement of the message. The message had, of course, to be repeated at Port Darwin, but this was done simultaneously so that little or no time was lost. Port Darwin and Singapore were in direct communication through the duplicate cable recently laid, which avoids the necessity of using the landline through Java. Since the duplicate cable has been submerged, the time occupied in the transmission of messages between London and Adelaide is greatly reduced, seldom occupying more than a few hours. And from Adelaide, they invariably beat the sun, arriving at their destination in advance of the local time at which they were handed in. Just gives you an idea about the pace that things moved at back in the day. Messages travelling around the world in a few hours rather than the instant that we have now. Let's take another short break with some more advertisements. Lime. Good lime. Best lime. W Gray, in conjunction with DA Gray, has taken from the government the best limestone hills on the North Beach and has commenced the business of lime burning and is now prepared to supply the building trade and the public of Perth and Fremantle with the best burnt stone lime procurable in the colony at one shilling per bushel. Shippers, merchants and traders supplied with lime in hogsheads, barrels, sacks, tins or jars ready for shipment. Orders to be addressed to William Gray, Lime Burner, Wellington Street, Perth. 
establishment. Family and general washing executed in the latest London style by the undersigned, who, having had five years' experience in a first-class laundry in England, begs to inform ladies and families they may with confidence depend on their laundry work being done well, in the shortest possible time and on reasonable terms. Soiled linen baskets to arrive with duplicate keys for use of families. Jane Beasley, William Street, Perth. And as we come towards the end of the news for June 4th, 1880, let's move into sport. This piece in the morning bulletin of Rockhampton, Queensland, comes via cablegram from London. The second innings between the Australian 11 and 18 of Keeley was resumed today. The Australians in the first innings were all out for 98. The home team in their second innings were speedily disposed of for 51, leaving the Australians 56 runs to get to win. Boyle bowled well and succeeded in taking 12 Keeley wickets. The Australians in their second innings scored 32 with the loss of two wickets when time was called and the game consequently brought to a close. The match was thus drawn but was decidedly in favour of the 11. Which is probably fair, all things considered, because as I did say at the start, there was an Australian 11 playing against 18 of Keeley. 11 players versus 18 players? It's a bit of a challenge there, but... That's how cricket was played back in 1880. Sometimes if there was a weaker team, they'd get some more players. Meanwhile, another piece on cricket in London was reported in the Riverine Herald from Echuca, Victoria. The captain of the Canadian cricket team, at present making a tour through England, has been arrested as a deserter from the British Army in 1872. Pretty game to try and make his way around England, disguised as a Canadian who can play cricket. Finally, we finish with a bit for the ladies. This piece on feminine athletics comes from the Armidale Express and New England General Advertiser in New South Wales. Practically, there is no attention paid to athletic training at present. Parents take but little heed of the muscular education of their girls. In fact, the idea of robust muscular women is repulsive to most minds. A creature with limp, powerless arms and a wasp-like waist constitutes the popular idea of female beauty. Whereas what we ought to admire is a form unconfined, well-knit, supple as that of the panther, with an arm round, white and hard as marble from the well-strung muscles under the polished skin. All this is very attainable. We have the means of attaining health and beautiful strength almost without altering our mode of life. We can surely all walk. But how seldom do we meet with a woman who can do her five miles without great fatigue? Now, walking is one of the most delightful forms of motion when one has really learnt the art. This can only be done through practice. Most women sit in their houses for weeks or only saunter daily down the streets for a few hundred yards. Then one day, the idea seizes them that they will have a good long walk. Off they go, labour on, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. They persevere to the journey's end. However, arriving quite exhausted and unable to do anything but rest for days, 
After this, they decide that walking does not agree with them and resume their sedentary habits. All this is a great error. In order to walk with pleasure and profit to ourselves, we must begin when young, walk a set distance daily and at a given uniform pace. The distance must be short at first and gradually increased. The pace, likewise slow at first, must quicken day by day until the desired proficiency is attained. If mothers were careful to have the pedestrian training of their girls begun about the age of 12, then our eyes would be gladdened by the sight of women moving with grace, dignity and swiftness along our streets. And, moreover, we should have another enjoyment added to our list of social pleasures, for wives and sisters could accompany their husbands and brothers on delightful walking expeditions. So there you go, folks. If you want to get fit and you're a lady, why not try walking? And with that rambling piece, we come to the end of today's bulletin. For June 4, 1880, this was the news. is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, 18 June. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News.